Welcome to Change Making Women, the podcast for women who make a difference. With Ziada Bade in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Marianne Clements in London, in the UK. We are both here today with Anima Kosai, who is actually in London, like I am. And uh, Amina has a um, work called Speak Up, which I think she's going to introduce us to now. So, Anima, it'd be great to hear a bit about you and your work. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Marianne, and thank you, Ziada. It's good to be here with both of you today, and thanks for inviting me. So, well, let, let me introduce myself and then the work I do yeah. uh, with uh, Speak Up. Uh, I'm, I'm actually half Malaysian, half British. Um, I was born here in London, but I've spent most of my life um, both schooling and working uh, in Malaysia. And I've I'd say that's where I formed most of my impressions and experiences and so on. Uh, but m- being in Malaysia also, I mean, I, I worked for a mix of um, law firms. I'm a, I'm a lawyer by, by profession, and I was with the, with the legal profession for just under 10 years, and also working with multinationals. Um, so I joined the oil and gas industry and worked uh, in the industry for about 14 years or so before I left to, to start Speak Up. And this was primarily out of uh, Malaysia. I sort of saved, uh, served most of Southeast Asia um, as I was working um, in Kuala Lumpur, based in Kuala Lumpur, and also India uh, as well. So um, it was uh, quite uh, exciting to see different countries, different cultures um, in, a, in a workplace context. Now, um, you know, talking about Speak Up, it's interesting, lawyers speak a lot, <laughs> right? But um, we're often sort of speaking to make forward an argument and to persuade others to our point of view. Um, but one of the things I noticed, lawyers can also be quite intimidating, right? So when lawyer, you know, introduce yourself as a lawyer, you never neutral response if you like, you know, and um, people were kind of um, fall silent. And I found that um, in some ways, I, I kind of, I would say I took advantage of that. It's a privilege um, to be a lawyer. I mean, that is a position of privilege and the problem, and there's power with that as well. And the problem is um, when people know your position, they tend not to tell you things. Um, because they're afraid it will get them or other people into trouble. Um, because you know we're definitely we're all about legal and compliance and 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 those sort of things. And it was interesting um, as I was working in the industry uh, specifically. You know, I'd be uh, in charge of compliance in terms of business ethics, in terms of harassment-free workplace anti-corruption, anti-fraud, um, those sort of um, issues, and also supporting um, people who were looking at health, safety, and environment um, issues as well. And one of the things I realized is um, if anything went wrong, um, let's say you had a rogue employee who did something which was either illegal or had a behavior, they were harassing or sexually harassing other people. One thing I noticed was that it was never done in isolation. There would be people around them who would know. And this really puzzled me to start with. I was sort of, um, you know, if you saw this happening or you were suspicious that someone was, you know, taking kickbacks, why, why didn't you tell anybody? You know, why didn't you come and report it to me or to someone else? And there was a range of responses. Um, some of them were fear. 
um, like, um, oh, what if I, because uh, I don't know, you know, who's involved in this, what if I uh, get fired, uh, that sort of thing. And you'd see that that fear is common throughout the entire world, right? I mean, you can talk about whistleblowing and so on. Um, but the, the other one was really, really interesting. There would be people who felt a sense of loyalty to their colleague who was doing something wrong, or they didn't want that person to get into trouble, even though they knew it was wrong. Um, and um, so, so this really uh, fascinated me. And um, not only was I observing this within my own um, ambit, but I noticed it was happening in, in, in the country, uh, in Malaysia. You might have heard of the huge um, corruption scandal that brought down the previous Prime Minister Najib Razak, this was known as 1MDB, that the US uh, Department of Justice also took action on. Mm -hmm. um, and then also I noticed there were things happening around the world. We can talk about Volkswagen in Germany, you can talk about Petrobras in Brazil, Wells Fargo in the US, um, Jimmy Saville, for example, um, uh, in the UK, um, the Fukushima Daiichi disaster in, in Japan, and all of these are actually, and Weinstein, of course, um, in the US, and all of these are pointing at different industries, different countries, and different types of wrongdoing, whether we're talking about corruption, whether we're talking about safety, so dangerous conditions where people can get killed, whether we're talking about um, sexual harassment and bullying, and even to the extent of sexual assault and rape also do gets, do, does get covered up. And um, so these were the things that we all know to be wrong, but yet there seems to be, in, when it happens in a workplace, in organizations, there is this tendency for people to stay quiet about it because they fear. And even when things do get reported, there seems to be a tendency of some organizations to sort of cover it up as if it didn't happen, as if something that happens within them reflects badly on the organization, like it's a family thing, like, oh no, we have a sexual harasser in our company, this is really shameful. And this is something I think we need to destigmatize in this world where you have patriarchy and sexism. If you don't have a sexual harasser in your midst, I think something, you know, you're either a very small organization or maybe, you know, you just have one gender. Um, but sexual harassment is so common and there's nothing to be ashamed of having it in the organization as long as you as a company do something about it, right? And uh, that's one myth I'm trying, that's one paradigm I'm trying to shift. But anyway, so seeing all these that were happen that was happening and realizing as a lawyer, right, because I used to handle or oversee investigations, I used to interview people in investigations, write up reports, look at reports, go to court um, and uh, take action or defend um, some of them. What I was noticing that if people had spoken up really early on, you know, we wouldn't see some of these scandals or we wouldn't see people getting hurt. We wouldn't see millions or in many cases, billions of dollars being pilfered away if people had felt safe enough to speak up and report what they saw. So, I mean, I came very much from a compliance uh, point of view. I wanted to encourage people to speak up. So when I, 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 I was doing, you know, this kind of awareness within my own company and I realized this is too big. I mean, I need, this, needs to, this needs to go on a bigger platform. It's not just for my company. I can see how much value it would offer to workplaces around the world. Um, so I'm just coming to a point where uh, I wanted to move back uh, to the UK. Uh, my mum uh, lives here in, in, in the UK. 
And so my daughter and I moved back. Um, and that's when I decided I was also really exhausted after being fully employed in a very, very consuming job, um, high pressured as well for many, many years. So um, I took a break, just sort of wrote a lot. Um, and I think that also helped raise my profile um, because I would write about you know, Volkswagen or, or the Deepwater Horizon BP um, uh, explosion in the Gulf of Mexico, because I come from oil and gas, it's something I'm very familiar with. Um, and then, of course, when Me Too happened, um, I spoke and wrote a lot about that, um, did some, um, conducted training and workshops on, on, on areas like sexual harassment and bullying. So this is something I've been incredibly passionate about, and I just wanted to take it to a bigger platform. I thought, well, I'll, I'll create my own platform. And um, one of the things I've done actually this year um, is invite other thought leaders in that space to join me. Uh, they're mainly from, from the UK, Europe, US, and also Malaysia. And I'm actually looking to expand that for other thought leaders as well. We formed um, what I call the Speak Up Academy, um, which is, you know, um, a group of us who are looking to solve this. We are aware of the problems and we're sort of, you know, exchanging ideas, thoughts, listening to each other. And um, this is something that we want to be providing to, to um, workplaces, companies around the world. That was a long introduction, I think. <laughs> no, it was really interesting. <laughs> um, one particular thing that caught my attention is, you know, the sexual harassment in an organization, sometimes a little bit blurred, especially for women. Sometimes they don't even know if, you know, what a man said, that's a sexual connotation. Is it not? Is it, you know, a, a flirtatious kind of thing? Is it not? So I just wanted to, um, to ask, how can you describe some of these actions that describe sexual harassment that's a that's a really good question i get it all the time um, and you're right there, there there's a lot of what people think are the blurring of the lines but actually it's quite clear um sexual harassment if you look at it um so i'm just saying it from from memory right from a, from a from a definition standpoint is any any conduct or which includes words as well as behavior um of a sexual nature right um if it's not of a sexual nature then that would be harassment of which bullying um is included so it's it's, it's conduct of a sexual um nature which makes the recipient or people around um any any other people in the workplace feel uncomfortable humiliated offended violated threatened intimidated um and so the focus is really actually on the recipient. Uh, oh, I've missed a, a crucial part. So it, it's conduct which is intended or has the effect of making the recipient feel uh, all those things, humiliated and so on. And this is where the line, this is where people get confused. So for example, if someone cracked a, a sexual joke and other people were like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable or you know is he or she talking about me and you know icky you know or feels violated some way that actually is sexual harassment and if the the the, the recipient was to say back to the joker you know that's sexual harassment and his or her response is oh i was only joking i had no intention to sexually harass you doesn't matter intention is irrelevant if the recipient is already feeling violated 
right? So people were like, what, you mean I can't joke? They actually tell, you know, they tell me things like this. And I said, of course you can joke, but what, what kind of joke is it if you're hurting someone else? That isn't a joke, it's not funny. It might be funny to you, but it's not funny to the other person. And even in the context of, let's say, two people are, are cracking a joke at the water cooler, for example. <laughs> so I'm just gonna give an example of two men making a sexual joke and there's some women sitting around there and they can hear it. And they'll say something, they go, ha, ha, ha. Now, between them, there's no sexual harassment, obviously, but it's really uncomfortable for the women who are listening. And that makes it sexual harassment because the work environment is impacted in that it feels unsafe for the, for the others there. They may feel threatened or violated in some way. Um, and the more powerful the person, the, the harasser is, the more serious it is. So let's say an intern was to go to um, another colleague and ask. So I'll, I'll do male, female, because that tends to be the common thing. But I'll just add that men do get sexually harassed, um, not just by women, but by other men as well. But um, so let's say, uh, you know, an intern asks uh, another colleague out, says, you know, let's go on a date. And then she goes, oh, no. And he keeps on harassing her. And, and she goes, no, that, that is an element of sexual harassment, but it's not incredibly serious because he's an intern and she may not feel that threatened. He's just a nuisance. You know what I mean? But if it is someone senior, like a boss um, who's, who's saying, let's go out, she may feel forced to oblige and say yes, because she fears that her job may be on the line she may not get, you know, she might get a backlash if she says no. So this is what we call in the US, it's called quid pro quo. Um, in, other, in other countries, sometimes they call it sexual coercion. So essentially, it is where there is a power dynamic between someone senior and a subordinate in that uh, because they're not level, uh, women especially may feel forced to say yes. But, it, but if they're uncomfortable, it is sexual harassment. And this is where lines can feel really blurred, especially if you're following the Weinstein trial where you know, he says, well, or some of, the, um, some of the media personalities in the US who say, well, she said yes when I asked her for a date and she, she continued to send me text messages like thank you and all that. Yes, that is true. But the point was that there was this huge power dynamic between the two. So it, when it comes to sexual harassment or harassment, Power is a big factor in underlying all this. I hope mm. it helps. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I, I don't know if the other way, for me, that was, there was loads yeah. of clarity. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask something slightly different. So um, I work a lot with international NGOs and obviously there were a number in the last few years of, of kind of high profile scandals. Initially, the one about Oxfam and, and um, sex abuse in Haiti and then one concerning Save the Children and actually a number of other smaller, less well publicised uh, conversations. There about were quite a few that. in London too, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but what's interesting, I think, about how the sectors responded is, and it's sort of well, I'll come back to what you're doing in a minute. But um, is you know, there's a lot of talk about making sure we have the right policies, the right um, guidelines, the right things in place to kind of prevent these things happening again. And then, you know, that obviously many of us also realise that that whatever you put in place, these things will happen. As you as you pointed out, it shouldn't really be a shame that 
that they happen it's, it's more about how do you deal with them or how do you preempt them or how do you you know mm -hmm. make make it less likely that they cause harm and uh, and so and I noticed as you were talking that actually although some of the policies imply people speaking up more there hasn't been that much focus that I've seen actually on this thing of you know speak up <laughs> right <laughs> and so I'm interested in like how you think of that in your work being maybe different or, or going alongside like other strategies that might try and address some of these things. I, I, I'm particularly thinking about sexual harassment, yeah, yeah. but it could be other issues, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, whether it's sexual harassment or the other issues, the, the process is, is, is quite similar. And, and in some ways that's not a good thing, but I'll, 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 I'll walk you through the boxes. So I call you this, I call this typical compliance box ticking exercise, which will defend a company legally, but it doesn't do anything for, for the, the people who work there, or it does maybe to a certain extent. Now the boxes are important that these are in place, but the problem is that organizations think, well, you know, I've done my job and they, then they, they sort of dust off their hands and walk away, forgetting that, hello, they're human beings um, here. So we take a very human focus, but very quickly I'll walk you through the boxes and in Speak Up, we've, we've got this acronym, which we call PERIL, right? So PERIL, P-E-R-I-L. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of like it because it sounds scary, um, but P stands for policies and processes. So you have a policy, so for example, sexual harassment, is there a policy on sexual harassment? right? And then what is the process? Um, if there is an incident, what happens, right? And then the next one is education and awareness. So, you know, are people trained? So having a policy is not good enough if no one knows about it, right? Um, so, and, and are people trained? What is sexual harassment? What is, what is acceptable, not acceptable, and so on. And then we go into R, which is about essentially about reporting and response. Now, some organizations, especially the bigger ones, will have, you know, your reporting hotlines and some of yep. them are anonymized. Yep. So you don't have to leave your name and so on. Although this, if you're in a small organization, it's quite easy to pinpoint who made mm -hmm. the report, actually. Um, so um, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't necessarily create a sense of safety. And one of the things where I think organizations really fall down is the response part of it. And this is where we focus on. So if someone was to go up to a person, typically be HR, right? So let's say this, this employee has been sexually harassed and she or he goes to HR and says, you know, this has happened. Um, what often happens is that the person in HR, because they themselves haven't been trained, maybe they have their own baggage when it comes to, because sexual harassment tends to be very personal. It's actually a very mm. scary thing compared to, you know, uh, not turning up at work or, you know, all those other kind of issues. Yeah. Um, and often the response is it actually hurts the, the victim more than um, if they hadn't reported at all. So I've spoken to so many people who've reported sexual harassment and they were made to feel like they were the victim. So there was victim blaming going on at the HR level. There was also a sense of, oh, well, that's nothing. You know, um, you know, I got it worse. So, you know, what you're complaining about, just deal with it. Because when I was your age, da, 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 da. and a lot of this comes from women, I have to tell you. What I found, the, the men tend to take it a bit more seriously. It's the women in HR who brush it off. That, that's something mm. we, need to, we need to start thinking about, right? Mm. Because a lot of the men haven't experienced it. So they go, oh, and they listen. But the, the women 
um, are the ones who have experienced it and think oh, you're not tough enough. Look, I survived it, so why yeah. can't you? And that's something we need to start. And that's not supportive at all. That's really, yeah. uh, I mean, it's awful. It abs- you know, when I tell, especially the older women, what you know, when I, I look at things like sexual harassment, they'll all tell me their stories when they were working in the 70s and the 80s. And they said, but you know what? I survived it. I don't understand what these young women are complaining about. And I just stand there horrified. I said, what, did you like it when it happened to you? No. So I said, but you're okay with the fact that we should perpetuate it? (laughs) No, if if you remember how you felt at the time, surely you don't want another woman to go through that. But anyway, um, so the response really tends to let um, the victims down. And this is why the Me Too movement sprung up. It's, It's because the employers were not listening when the women spoke up. Yeah. So this is why um, I realized speaking up by itself wouldn't really make a difference if no one was listening. So this is where we come to the next bit. I, by the way, stands for investigation and L is about leadership. And this is where, um, you know, uh, one of our focuses. So in Speak Up, um, you know, I have three areas. There's a speaker upper, the person who speaks up. And then there's the listener. And then I also have the space in between. So the three elements. And space in between is the environment, the context, the workplace, the culture, right? Both within the workplace and society, because people go into work still with their attitudes, right? They don't lose their whatever attitudes and, and culture and experiences they have. If, if they've been brought up in a very patriarchal culture, they will bring that attitude into the workplace and you will see it um, manifesting in a workplace setting as well, right? So um, the listening part um, of the person who's responding to someone who's reporting sexual harassment or anything else is very, very important. So speak up. One of the things that we are really focusing on is learning to listen, especially for leaders and especially for change makers. And it's really hard. Listening is hard. Um, uh, if you've all got children, you know, I've got a teenager, they teach you a lot about listening because the parents were so busy telling um, that are we really listening? Are we listening to their needs? Are we, lis- are we listening to what they want and so on? So my biggest teacher has actually been my, my, my daughter. And I, I bring that into, you know, um, my work as well in the sense that how am I when I listen? Now, I, I said at the beginning when I introduced myself that as lawyers, we tend to be intimidating and I realized that this was probably a big, uh, a big disadvantage for me. When I was in the oil and gas industry, um, um, I, was, I was also very curious about safety. That's another passion of mine. And um, so um, the company I was working for, we had a, not a big incident, um, but there was an incident that we had to go and report and share it with all the other um, companies in the industry. Um, so I asked my, my HSC manager, can I come to the meeting as well? I really want to, I'm curious, what does this look like, this big, huge meeting with everybody there and, you know, you'd be sharing this. So he said, okay, I can bring you along on one condition. I said, what? Do not give anyone your name card because it would show that I was the, the legal counsel. <laughs> and don't tell anyone you're a lawyer. And the reason was that everybody would just shut up, right, if they knew I was a lawyer. 
So I said, okay. So I, I just introduced myself from the company and I was with him, right? Um, but I wasn't there in, in my, my role as a lawyer. I was there who, someone who was very curious about how companies discussed safety issues and problems and what they could do to improve. It was very enlightening. But that was really interesting that he said to me, don't tell anyone you're a lawyer because they would shut up. So listening in this sense <laughs> is very hard for lawyers because the moment they know who you are, people just sort of um, shut up. So, so that was one of the hardest things for me. And I think as a person, I was so busy speaking, was I really listening? And it wasn't just listening to what people said. It was also listening to what people weren't saying. Um, and that's a bigger thing, especially in cultures where there's a high level of respect, uh, where you're in a culture. So in Malaysia, I mean, this, is, this was quite common. You must respect your elders, right? You don't speak unless you're spoken to. Um, so you don't, you don't openly challenge your bosses because there's this big cultural sort of face saving, right? So um, there's a lot that people won't say, even if the boss turns around and say, well, what is your idea on this? Um, do you have any other views other than the one I've just put forward? And everybody said, no, I'll agree with you, boss, right? And we lose so much out there. So when we, we talk about leaders learning to listen, they need to drop that sense of, well, I'm a leader and I'm always right. <laughs> My tone is changing. Um, yeah. So anything you say is lesser than, than, than what I have to say. So um, we are really looking um, in terms of not just active listening, but being very aware of the power dynamic um, when a leader listens to someone who is junior to, to him or her, right? Um, so that, that's quite important. So a lot of people won't tell you things unless you're, they trust you and they know that you're listening to them. They know that you have, that you care. That's a big element as well of it. Um, in Speak Up, we focus a lot on empathy, on compassion, on, on really caring for the person and communicating that. It's human focused. And this is where the box ticking culture tends to forget that we're dealing with human beings who have fears, who have motivations, who have desires. And what we see happening in the workplace, um, they're not robots. Right? <laughs> um, they will be making decisions which sometimes are fear-based and people need to understand that. Um, and as change makers within organizations, we need to understand that. So a, a lot of the work that I do is around um, supporting leaders and change makers in, in discussing this, in exploring this and, and getting to understand it at, at a deeper level. Yeah, no, that's it's super interesting. And um, I wonder in the, in the context of, of the pandemic right now, of COVID-19, how is some of this stuff playing out? Is, does it feel like there's more attention on it? Does it feel like people are struggling to pay attention to it in this kind of uh, crisis mode that many, many people and organizations are operating in? Or what would you say is the impact of that context on, on, on well, the work you're doing? Well, it's interesting. I'll speak in two areas. One is a compliance focus and one is a um, general. Um, I'll start with the general. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of fear and, and, and that, that's, that's expected. Um, fear over, you know, uh, one's own uh, mortality and, and, you know, are your family, is your family safe? Um, there's that. So it's the virus itself. The second one is, is financial um, and security. Um, so will I have a job? 
how long, you know, if I'm furloughed, how long will this be? You know, at the end of it, um, will, will there be a job waiting for me? What do I have to do? Um, you know, I can't even sell my property because the market's clearly, no one's buying. You know, so there are all these kind of concerns that we have. And that's a concern I have too. It's scary. And I think this is one of the things that we need to accept is that we are scared. All of us scared. The leaders are scared. And no one has any answers. We don't know. No one, no one in the world knows what's going to happen. Right. But what we do know um, are things that, um, is that we're here. This is happening. But we're also human beings who actually, we've forgotten how adaptable we are because, I mean, I think most people here listening have not lived in the Second World War or even remember it, right? right. Um, and, and if anybody did, um, they certainly weren't adults, right? So the thing is that for all of us, this is the first time we have experienced this kind of, this level of uncertainty. But if you think about, you know, millennia, right? This was just the way it was. I think we only need to look at the um, yeah, movies of, of um, people living, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago. There's always going to be war. There's always going to be uncertainties. Sometimes there'd be a drought. But guess what? People would adapt and survive. And, and that's what we're going through now. And how did they do it? By supporting each other. So we're very used in the past 60, 70 years. Um, I think we've become more and more isolated. And, and this is where the big, there's a big irony, isn't there? We're now undergoing social isolation, although I think I would describe it more as physical uh, isolation. Mm -hmm. um, but we've actually been isolated for many, many, many years right um although you know some of us may be living around some of us may be living with families but it's been very much that small unit as opposed to a more communal sort of feel to it and what i see now now i know my neighbors i live in london i didn't know my neighbors before but now i do because we've got a whatsapp group going in terms to help anybody who, who cannot leave the house right um so which is like a really different sort of feeling. Um, we're becoming more communal. And, and this is the thing. As human beings, we are a very much a communal species. We do rely and support on each other. And I think this is where, because I, I, I've grown up in the corporate world. I'm, I'm, I'm a corporate person. That's the world I understand. I live and breathe in. And this is where the corporate world, businesses, capitalism need to shift focus. It's no longer about making profits. We're now talking about survival, right? It is really about supporting people. First of all, you know, supporting your own employees, but also supporting others. And I think what's really heartening to see is that there have been some companies, and some of them are big brands, right? Um, I'm trying to remember which one. Perfume makers are making sanitizers. Um, you know, factories are changing their, their assembly lines to make ventilators. Um, re, uh, clothing manufacturers are making PPE. You see how there's that shift, right? Because some leaders very quickly cottoning onto the fact what is the most important thing, long, long term, is really the, you know our own our own survival. But not just that from a physical point of view, also from a wellness and mental health point of view, um, because being on your own physically at home is pretty. Uh, damaging. I've spoken to people who say, you know, I've not been hugged for two months now. I haven't, no one's touched me. That's yeah. heartbreaking, right? Um, and um, so this is where I feel that 
the more we are part of a community, even though it's on Zoom, um, the better we feel. And so one of the things I did, so one of my partners and I, um, so he's a, he's Kunan Manian in the US. And this is the other thing, I've never physically met him. You know, we've been in partnership for, for a while now. And, um, but we're always chatting because it's so easy now online. So we, 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 we formed the Speak Up Academy. In fact, we did it just before lockdown, not knowing all this would happen. And then we realized, my goodness, this is now more important ever than before. And what the Speak Up Academy does is that we bring people from different parts of the world who are in the space of anti-corruption, um, looking at sexual harassment and workplace bullying, looking at safety, health, safety, and environment, looking at you know the supply chain you know human rights abuses through the supply chain for example and um you know if 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 anyone here is very interested in joining please please you know drop me a line but we're bringing together the thought leaders in this space uh, from around the world because what we want to do is create change right meaningful change for organizations i mean we will be offering courses and master classes for change makers like you know people in compliance or HR, audit, risk, legal, and of course, board members themselves, C-suite, CEO people themselves, who really think I need to do something about this. And this I mean you know, addressing potential wrongdoing within their organization and knowing how to deal with it very, very early on before it gets bad, or dealing with it after something has happened. And it's interesting because we have um, a number of experts in, let's say, fraud. So we're, we're going to be offering a fraud course uh, in June. And what we know is that when there's a crisis like this, like COVID-19, compliance kind of goes out the window because a lot of um, compliance, like in terms of, well, you know, procurement uh, compliance type issues are very much focused on in real life. You know, physically you can fly out and check a supplier and all that. Can't do that now. So this, this, you have the opportunists, the fraudsters that come up. And we already know that there are governments who have been defrauded um, you know, through supply of PPE. I won't name any, but you probably can think of who they are. Uh, being, you know, uh, they pay for PPE and then what comes, either it doesn't appear at all, that's they're being scammed, or they receive something that doesn't meet standard, but they've already paid. Because if they didn't pay, they wouldn't get it. And, and when, whether we're talking about governments or hospitals or other organizations are desperate to receive equipment, PP, all these kind of things. Um, uh, they don't do the, the typical kind of checks that you would do because there's no time. And also because it's a case of demand um, uh, outstripping supply. Like uh, the, the supplier will say, well, if you've got so much criteria, I'll just go find another customer. And there you go, right? Um, so fraud is really a big thing right now. And if organizations aren't taking steps to detect it and deal with it, they're going to lose millions of dollars. We, we, we already know that. And it's not because um, we don't have the data. There is a lot of data already to back this up. The moment there is a crisis, I mean, you, could, you only need to look at, let's say, the hurricanes when they, when they hit various places in the U.S., then what happens? That's when all the fraud comes up, people making false claims or uh, su suppliers um, or so-called suppliers taking money and never delivering, right? Because organizations are desperate. So you get, you get these opportunists um, coming up. So that, that's why it, right now it is really critical 
to be examining um, the whole sort of speak up people being able to report, but it's also harder. So, you know, one of our experts was saying, if a company didn't have a good speak up culture to begin with, you're hardly going to expect it to get any better when everyone is just communicating on Zoom and isolating, working from home and so on. It's going to be worse. So we also have communication specialists as part of the academy where, you know, we sort of can advise on, well, how do you communicate to your staff? that it's safe for them to speak up and to who, how does that look? How, you know, so there's a whole lot of different areas sort of look at, but fraud and corruption are a big thing. And the other thing, um, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with two experts on sexual harassment. And I asked them, so one was in Malaysia, another one was here in London. And I asked both of them, um, what uh, do you think there's, there's been a decrease in sexual harassment because people aren't physically in the same workplace and they said, no, no, it's, it's just taking place on, on, online. Um, so there's, um, there's that too. And, and then the question is, when people are very fearful of, um, you know, whether they'll still have jobs, are they going to report that they're being sexually harassed? Most would prefer not to because they would value their jobs over their own sense of uh, physical safety sometimes. And it's, this is what um, uh, organizations need to be aware of, um, that it could even get worse and no one is speaking up. Yeah, right. It feels like um, there's, there's big opportunity and, all, you know, and, and in that way that, that, that corporations are realizing that it's so important to care for your people and, and that it can't any longer just be about the bottom line. And as you said, and at the same time, there's, there's massive challenges around, around some of the things that could become worse in this context of crisis that kind of pushes people in new ways. I think it's 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 a it's a really interesting time for you to be doing your work, and I just wonder, like, um, what ways have you had to adapt? I know a lot of it's online, so you know that's, oh, okay. that's probably. A oh, could I just address one more point, which I sure. think is really really important? Um, so, uh, especially here in the UK, the lockdown has been relaxed, and I laugh when we call it a lockdown because I, I don't really think the UK is under lockdown conditions when you compare it to many of the countries in Asia. Uh, which is probably why they've been able to fight it much, much better um, than the UK. And so there's this, there's this sense of, um, you know, people are being told, yes, you can go back to work if you yeah. can't work from home. And especially, um, and, and there's a bit of an inequality here. It, the people who have to go to work are people in construction, yeah. people in service type industries, utilities, and so on. And they tend to be the lower uh, wage earners um, and people like us are very fortunate because we yeah. can, you know, uh, we can be working from home. We can avoid going on public transport or being in 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 spaces where there may not be uh, enough space for social distancing. And um, I've also done a series of uh, I've done a podcast as well on safety. Um, and I've spoken. We have some safety experts in the Speak Up Academy as well from several countries. And 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 one of the things we talk about is that if workers feel unsafe, um, mm -hmm. either traveling or at the workplace, you know, maybe they're worried that they have the virus or family has a virus and they report it to their boss and the boss says, well, you still have to come to work. There's that sense of, oh no, or, you know, there's no proper uh, sanitization, you know, and so they're very worried and they want, they want to tell the boss, I think it's better that I work from home, but then the boss says, no, you still have to come in. So there's that sense of, you know, the inability to speak up on safety. 
right? Uh, if they are working under unsafe conditions. And this is something we, we emphasize so much. I mean, one of our safety experts is based in Ireland and um, she's already um, advising companies because Ireland actually is doing a lot better um, than the UK, but they're taking it really, really seriously in terms of what are the policies they need to have in place, um, you know, and how do, they, how do they enforce that? How do they educate people, especially at middle level, uh, to ensure that they don't bully uh, the workers into coming in when they shouldn't? Um, so all this is going on, people are going to work, but not feeling safe and they can't speak up about it. So th this is a serious issue that we need to look at because we're talking about life and death. We've also, we did a webinar um, about a month or so ago on frontliners and we had, um, we had um, an expert, Roger Klein here in the UK, who's advised the NHS before, and he looks a lot about dis uh, look at discrimination especially since many black and minority ethnic groups are affected in the NHS um, and they have a higher death rate um, compared to the others. And also in the US, we had several, we had two nurses come on our call. Um, one was in Texas, I think the other was somewhere on the, on the West Coast. And they were talking about the conditions that they were working in, where one of them you know, had an N95 mask and a manager pulled it off and said, you shouldn't, you're scaring the, the, the patients. And this is the thing, um, in many workplaces where there are hospitals for frontliners and others, is that there's a huge sense of lack of safety. Um, but you know, speaking up is, is, is threatening to them because some of them have been fired or they've been threatened with being fired if they don't behave. So it's really, really vital um, at the moment um, that uh, organizations look at this and learn how to, to receive feedback in a, in a non-defensive way. And again, this is something that we, we advise on and coach on and help organizations with. Um, I do have a follow-up question to that. Um, right now, as we are working from home, do you see a dynamic change when it comes to having more women speak up? You know, they're less likely to speak up, and I'll tell you why. Um, for women working from home, especially if they have young children, um, uh, some of them have been furloughed, especially if they're pregnant. So there, there's several things. Um, if they're in situations where they cannot come to work because they have young children or they're pregnant, they are more likely to be uh, furloughed, or they're, you know, they're, if the country doesn't have fellow scheme in place but sort of put inside and in a sense they feel a little bit um uh marked because it would be like well this person can't deliver as much because you know they've got young children to look after and this causes a climate where they're fearing for, for the long term uh, of their jobs and therefore they are less likely to speak up so actually this situation has made it worse for women definitely yeah, I think I think just in, in my own experience and, and things I've been reading, I'd also agree with that, that, that this situation tends to put extra pressure on women just because of the structural inequalities of, 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 of how households work and how organisations work and the things they pay attention to, right? Um, I think we've, we're probably running out of time now, but I did want to just ask you um, one more thing about like how you're personally you know, what adaptions you've had to make personally in terms of how you work or whether because most, a lot of your work's online, does it, does it feel like you've been able to continue as normal or, 
Yeah. Well, ironically, I've got busier um, work-wise um, since the, the lockdowns have started because before I used to meet people you know, face-to-face a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and now, um, um, I, and it's harder when you're meeting people face-to-face because they're juggling so many meetings and all that. But now yeah. everyone's working from home. Everybody is, oh yeah, it's not as if I'm going anywhere, so I'm free to call. <laughs> But and the other thing, um, so for me, it's been, it's been different. I have a different experience from most people who've had a nine to five job. And the reason is this, I left my nine to five job three years ago. So I've got over that sense of, oh, you know, I don't have a, a proper routine or, you know, I miss commuting and, and being with colleagues. Now, yes, I, I get that because I went through it, but I went through it three years ago, right? Um, and plus my, my, my daughter's homeschooling. So for me, there's been very little change in that sense, but I've got busier because suddenly everyone's available. And when I say available, not just here in the UK, but around the world, I mean, um, I have, there can be t- days where I have nonstop calls and it's exhausting, but it's also incredibly uplifting because the calls I have, and, and many of them are, you know, we, we have, we have our speak up cafe, which where, you know, the, the various experts that I have in our in our group um, we we're across we're 14 hours end to end from Kuala Lumpur on one end to Colorado on the other that's how far stretched we are um, and we can all jump on at the same time and and, and share stuff and it's really uplifting mm. um, and inspiring listening to you know people share their experience I mean and this is heavy stuff we're talking about sexual harassment and assault. We're talking about corruption. We're talking about people going to jail. We're talking about people having been victimized uh, and retaliated against. But listening to those stories also gives us a greater sense of purpose because when we're moving, for some of them, they've moved from this place of victimhood into leadership. And that's something we really encourage. Mm. But also um, for those of us who haven't been victims, um, it, it motivates us further to make that change. Stories are incredibly powerful. And so for me personally, I've been really, really uplifted by the community that I've been building. They're just, they're just amazing, amazing people. Thanks so much, um, Amina, for sharing with us about your work. It sounds really, um, really like a really powerful initiative to try and have more people speak up. And I, we really, well, I really wish you all the best of it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Of course, you can let the audience know where they can find your work as well. Well, you can find the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, Anima Kosai. I, I think you probably share my name. Look for me on LinkedIn. I'm the only person with that name. So do connect with me or drop me a message. If you're not on LinkedIn, I'm also on Twitter. Um, I do have a website, although seriously, I have to, I'm not as active on my website as I should be. And that's um, just Google speak up at work and you will find it. It's all just uh, one word or Google my name, speak up um, and, and, and you'll find some of the things I'm doing. So you can connect with me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter um, and then have a conversation with me. That's probably uh, the best way uh, to find me. We will be launching our Speak Up Academy public uh, soon. Uh, we haven't done that yet, but we will probably in June. Thank you. We will also share all your links uh, um, in the show notes for the podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And our theme tune over and over was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com.